In this show, we're joined by Rita McGrath, one of the world's most well-respected innovation experts, as she talks about her big ideas and where to start in creating an innovation strategy. Hey folks, welcome back to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender, along with my friend and colleague and my fashion inspiration, Mr. John Gomes. <laughs> Hi, Scott. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling good. I got back. Uh, are you ready for this? I, I got dressed this week, got in my car, and actually drove to my office and spent the day in an actual office. It was it was weird to wear pants that long, but it was fun. It was really... <laughs> you feel like a big, bo- really, big boy now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I don't remember that many people in the world, though. I, I really was kind of overwhelmed. It was, I don't know if it's always been that people-y out there, but it, it, was, it was a lot. But it was good. It was, it was really refreshing for my soul. So I'm feeling good. How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling uh, demob happy because I'm just about to go on holiday. So uh, really excited. So let me, let me uh, set it up for us. Um, so today we are joined by the brilliant and insightful Rita Gunther McGrath. Rita is a best-selling author, speaker, and a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. Rita has received the number one achievement award for strategy from the Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's top 10 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. Rita is the author of The End of the Competitive Advantage, which, among many other accolades, won the Financial Times Business Book of the Year Award. And her most recent book is Seen Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Yeah, and I'd like to add that the late and sadly missed innovation guru, Clayton Christensen, cited her, uh, one of her earliest books, uh, Discovery Driven Growth, as representing one of the most important management ideas ever developed. So Rita, uh, with all of that, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It, you, you make me sound very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. You are. <laughs> Rita, um, although uh, you're well known uh, for your work on innovation, you haven't always had a linear academic career, as some might imagine, in, in the field. Can you give us a sense of how you got here? Well, I started my PhD at the Wharton School after some period of basically doing a digital transformation. We didn't call it that then, but but it was doing a digital transformation for uh, the city of New York. So I was a bureaucrat in good standing. And in the course of doing that project, I became very intrigued by how large organizations respond to change. So respond to you know pressures that are put upon them. And so when I arrived, you know, freshly minted to do my PhD, I signed up at the Entrepreneur. Center at Wharton, which was run by Ian McMillan, um, who, if you've ever met him, is a quite, a quite colorful and very vivid personality. Uh, and, I, and he said to me, well, what are you thinking of doing your dissertation on? And I said, well, I'm thinking of the science of implementation. I think that would be really interesting. And he looked at me and he said, I can't think of anything more boring than the science of implementation. <laughs> so, um, so fortunately, we got a grant, and this was a bit by happenstance, with um, the, the city group that offered uh, to do a three-year study of their corporate venturing process. They were very interested in learning what made the difference between the ones that really worked and the ones that didn't and gave us a grant to study that. I became the project manager and that then became my work on how established organizations learn to do new things, which, I mean, don't tell Mac, it's kind of the science of implementation, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> just doesn't have the same ring about it, does it? No. <laughs> but that then led to an interest in corporate venturing uh, in building new capabilities, which is what my dissertation was about. And that's really evolved now into a whole different way of thinking about the life cycle of competitive advantage. And where I've landed at the moment is I really think leaders today need to get comfortable with the full life cycle. So the beginning of a competitive advantage, which is the innovation, new capability creation process, the thing they've always done really well, which is execution. And then, you know, when an advantage begins to go into erosion, how do you transform your organization? Because if you don't, it's going to go down the tubes as your advantage does. So one of the goals you've strived toward is eliminating what you call innovation theater, um, and I'm supremely interested in this idea, and I, I'm curious what you were seeing and, and how that informed your research and your writing and your speaking. I just, I'd love for you to pull that whole idea out for us. Sure. So innovation theater is what happens to companies when they want to say they're being innovative, but they don't really mean it. So mm. we have boot camps and thousands of post-it notes die a horrible death while we ideate. <laughs> and, you know, we send people off to Silicon Valley and they ride around on the Google bikes and they get their picture taken next to the Facebook sign. And it's all lovely. And I'm not saying it's bad. If you need to do that stuff to get momentum going, that's fine. But the real process of innovation requires at least three stages. So getting great ideas. And a lot of people mistakenly think that's the problem. It's not. You guys will have more great ideas by the time this podcast finishes than you could ever implement in your whole life. So it's getting great ideas, selecting among a lot of ideas to get the ones that are really going to be fruitful, then incubating them. And that's often where things begin to erode. So the mental model I would use for the incubation process is, you know, you can almost imagine a seesaw. And on one end of the seesaw is the elephant, which represents your core business. And on the other end of the seesaw is this like mouse <laughs> that represents the new things you might be taking. And if you don't really deliberately structure it properly, what happens is the elephant will overwhelm the mouse every time and you'll never get traction. But once you get through incubation, then what you need to do is take your little new venture and make it mature. So now it's got to grow up. And that's, again, a very different process because now you've been, you've been sort of fending off the lawyers and the compliance people, and you've been doing minimum viable products, and you've been doing all this great stuff. Now it's got to grow up. Now you've got to pay off technical debt. Even worse, you've got to pay off organizational debt. You know, so all those crazy titles that you gave people when you were first getting started, you know, I'm the chief ninja of exploration right now. All of a sudden, you know, I've got to be a senior executive vice president for blah, 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 whatever it is. So you've got to now make this thing part of your core business. Um, and that those three things are what's really required to create a genuine innovation uh, proficiency. So one of the things I've developed uh, in the last year or so is an actual measure. Uh, so we call it the Innovation Mastery Scale. And we've got eight levels. So level one is you're a regulated utility and your entire innovation process consists of your annual meeting with your regulator. <laughs> and the rest of it's all about operations, right? Uh, and then level eight, you're you know Amazon or Netflix and you're eating the world because innovation is now so pervasive and so permeates your very ethos that nobody even thinks about it. That's how we do things around here. And most organizations today, I would say, were somewhere in the three, four level. Um, and we can actually measure it. So the way that, that works is um, I've distilled just 24 questions. So it's really short. You can do it on your mobile phone in five minutes. Um, and we do it across the organization. So you get a bunch of people giving us that input. And then you can actually begin to see where, where are the pockets where it's working, where not, what level are we at as a whole, th those kinds of things. So you can actually measure where you are in, in, in your progress on this uh, path. 
So let's take a step back and run through the big ideas you've developed over the course of your career. Um, let, let's start with discovery-driven growth, and uh, which had its origins in, in failure, I believe. Rita's flops file. <laughs> yes. Take, take us through that. Sure. So this was again back, uh, back, this would have been in the early 90s. So I finished my PhD by this time and was exploring this fascinating phenomenon of really smart established organizations going into areas that you would think made sense for them. And yet having these huge, huge flops. So FedEx is zap mail, right? Which was a a concept where you you before we had fax machines, right? You would zap mail this document from one FedEx office to another and go pick it up. I mean, perfect fit for FedEx, right? You can't send stuff through the air; you send it electronically. Uh, total disaster. TV Cable Week, you know, this huge magazine that um, that that was attempting to take on TV Guide, you know, which is now irrelevant itself. But um, but that was a disaster. Bic perfume, or one of my all time favorites is Trojan's laudable effort to create condoms in variable sizes. It turns out with that particular product category, you sort of have to start at extra, extra large and work your way up. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so my rule about this is you have to lose your parent company at least $50 million to get entry to the flops file. And, uh, and there are a lot of, a lot of, I mean, and and we still have them, right? Remember last summer's Quibi, $1.5 billion to demonstrate that we really don't want to watch, you know, 10 minute movies that aren't very good. Um, Anyway, So I took a big step back and looked at all these case studies. And what started to emerge was a pattern. Untested assumptions taken as facts. Very few opportunities for low commitment testing. Leaders personally committed to the particular solution this thing was going to provide. Um, Funding all at once and typically upfront as though you knew what you were doing, right? Uh, And then a big team kind of coming together and and the need to be right. So let's let's just put ourselves in the mindset of someone proposing a project like this. You go to your board or your governance committee with this plan, right? And it's beautiful PowerPoint with all the quantifications of fantasy, you know, the spreadsheet at the end of the plan. Um, and you say, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to produce this ROI. It's going to have this outcome. Can I go do it? And they all say, yes, go do it, right? And so they give you all the money. They give you a big team. You head off um, as though you knew what you were doing. And about six months in, you realize you really don't. The customers aren't what you thought. The environment isn't there. The ecosystem isn't quite ripe. The technology doesn't do what the tech guys told you it could. In other words, you're you're stumbling across more um, assumptions that that are wrong. <laughs> and so, what what we did with that data was we said, well, how would you plan? If you knew going in that it was a highly uncertain situation and you didn't know, you didn't have the answers. And the answer is you'd plan in a very different way. You'd spend a tiny amount of money to say, what are the biggest assumptions we could test as fast as we possibly can? And so you plan through checkpoints. And as you as you hit each checkpoint, what you do is you stop and you say, what has changed since, since we endeavored to start on this thing. So what have we learned about customers? What have we learned about competition? What have we learned about the technology? And at each checkpoint, what you do is you race. So should we redirect? Should we accelerate? Maybe the opportunity is fleeting and we need to get a move on. Maybe we just continue or maybe we exit. You know, so even though the governing committee said, yes, you can have up to $500,000 to develop this thing, if we spend 50000 and discover this is a complete disaster waiting to happen and we hand them back 450000 that's not a failure, that's to be celebrated, right? And so it's a very different mindset, but it has to do with the fact that in high uncertainty, you can't plan as though you knew what you were doing, or at least your risk of being wrong and expensively wrong is magnified 
a lot. So what you're, what you're describing um, sounds very much like the lean startup movement, but you 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 came across this idea at least a decade before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How did you feel well, when, so, when that sort of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, well, it has an interesting background, right? So mm. um, so you probably are familiar with Steve Blank. He's an entrepreneur. Yeah. He went, he, so he went off and taught at Berkeley. One of his most brilliant students is a young man named Eric Ries, who comes from the world of entrepreneurship. One of the things they were assigned in that class was Discovery Driven Planning, my HBR article. And I guess Eric thought, made a lot of sense and uh, put it together for for entrepreneurs. And, you know, I think perhaps discovery-driven planning, even though it was, I believe, the original expression of that idea, and Clayton, by the way, would have agreed with you, mm. um, I think maybe it was just too early. You know, I think yeah. maybe the level of uncertainty hadn't gotten quite to the stage it is now. The pace of competition hadn't quite gotten there. Remember, this was I published it in 1995. We were yeah. we were still in dial-up internet days back then. So I think for a lot of people, they didn't really understand the need for it. And I think Eric, to his credit, I mean, he made the idea much more popular. He he really got the terminology into a lot of people's uh, frames of reference. Uh, where I think Eric struggled more was with the corporate side. So what you have to remember is startups are one thing, right? And mm. if you're a startup, you can be right or you can be wrong and the business can thrive or not. And it's kind of on its own merits. On the corporate side, you have all those considerations, but you've also got the mothership. <laughs> and yeah. I think one of the things that that I do well is, is looking at both of those levels at the same time. Yeah. And a lot of very smart entrepreneurs don't understand that. No, because they might have not have the resources, but they have the freedom to act. Mm -hmm. And, and they don't understand it. that in a company, yeah. that's not, you know, there are swim lanes in a company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't just elephant. do what you feel like every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think, you know, it's both Scott and I have worked with literally hundreds of teams um, doing what you're talking about and coaching them through the process of of um, test and learn and discovery-based, you know, uh, scale-ups and stuff within the corporate environment and how hard that is. Um, so the the... Your your approach and your 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 toolkit, I think, is something that we'd encourage all of our listeners if they're interested in in trying to to um, to do this. Really, you know, goes back to the source code because it's uh, it's brilliant. So, uh, thank you. Uh, so one thing that I can offer uh, mm. for your users is a tool that actually was in discovery driven growth. It went dormant for a bit because the technology got out of date, but we revived it now. It's called a bare bones net present value. And what this allows you to do, and this is particularly germane to those in corporate settings, um, because you know, they always want to know what the ROI is or what's the NPV of this thing. And of course, with a new business, you can't say you're just you're just making it up. So if you're going to make it up, make it up, but make it up with discipline. And so what the bare bones does is it allows you to project the entire life cycle value of a potential project by, by just putting in nine variables. So rather than have to sort of painstakingly calculate out quarter by quarter by quarter what this thing would be worth, it says, OK, I think this is how long it's going to take us to get to ramp up. This is how long ramp up's going to be. This is what we think we can make on it. This is when we we think it's going to go away. And by doing that, what you can do is start to put some structure around the assumptions that you're making. So it's a great place to start if you're thinking mm -hmm. about pitching a new business. And then what I love about it is you get in these I'm sure you've had these conversations. You get in the conference room and somebody says, well, I don't think you're going to be able to defend that advantage for that long. And you're like, fine, put it in your numbers and let's see what happens. <laughs> you know, So it's like, okay. Yeah, it's an adult <laughs> conversation. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. How, how would our listeners access that? Uh, you go to valise, V-A-L-I-Z-E dot com, and you go to resources, and it's a free download on that page. Brilliant. That's remarkable. Awesome. 
In your book, uh, The End of Competitive Advantage, which um, was so powerful, you talk about how we need to think differently about um, competitive advantage. Can you walk us through the insights, where that came through, and, 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 and really importantly, I guess, um, where have you seen that approach being adopted successfully? Ah, um, so let's start with where strategy started as a field. Um, and strategy really got formalized, I would say, in the 60s, maybe the 70s, in largely the United States and Europe. And if you think about it, the world was a really different place. Uh, we only just had shipping containers in 1956. So true global manufacturing was yet to come. We certainly didn't have the digital revolution as we knew it. Um, and Europe was still recovering, still struggling to get back. Uh, India was closed. China was closed. You know, I mean, it was a very different world and a much more stable one. And so strategy itself derived from a thing called industrial organization economics. And industrial organization economics is a fine field, but it presumes a couple of things. It presumes industries and it presumes organizations <laughs> as its central unit of study. And so the recipe for success that came out of that world was find an attractive position in an attractive growing industry, defend it with entry barriers, and that would predict your profitability for a long time to come. And if you think about it, if you're making tires or, or producing oil or, or industrial gases or something, that model kind of works. You've got very well-defined industry boundaries. Change happens slowly. It's very asset intensive. So there's not a lot of competitive rivalry and, 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 and. So the, the, the toolkit that we inherited from those days is a toolkit that assumes a thing called sustainable competitive advantage is going to be with us for a long time. And that's great. You know, if you can find one now, look at what's changed since then, though. We've had the internet, we've had globalization, we've had, you know, just sea changes of, of things that are different now. And what I would argue is that in more and more parts of our economy, what we're grappling with is what I call transient advantage. So you build an advantage, it lasts for a while, and then something happens. You know, a competitor comes in, customers get bored, whatever the thing is, your advantage goes into decline. So it's like a series of waves. And I think that's how organizations increasingly need to think about how they're competing. Uh, it's in these competitive waves. So innovation to create the new thing, exploitation to benefit from it, transformation when it's, when it's eroded. And that's more and more, I think, the tempo that organizations are having to pursue. So if I think of companies that get this, right, um, I would say Verizon under Ivan Seidenberg would be a great example of basically horrifying his investing community by selling off things like physical phone books. So he could invest in this weird thing called internet piping, right? Yeah. Um, and those kinds of leaders, the leaders that have that, that, that courage, that willingness to say, I can't just let the past weigh me down. Um, and so examples might be uh, Corning would, would be a great example. Uh, I think Procter & Gamble's done some amazing things in terms of continuously refreshing their product lines and coming up with new things. So there are companies that, or at least parts of companies that get this in, in a big way. Um, and I think uh, that that's, that's increasingly what senior leaders are looking to figure out. And here's the dilemma, right? That it is possible to be a very senior leader in a large multinational corporation and never have touched innovation and never have touched 
um, what I call disengagement, the, the need to take yourself out of an eroding advantage. And so this is a, a body of knowledge that's kind of foreign to them. And I think they find it very scary. So the good news is it's not. Uh, you, you can learn to do this. And there are practices around it. There's a discipline around it. It's, it's a bit like qual- where quality was maybe 50 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And if I'd said to you 50 years ago, how do you ensure quality? You would have said, well, I have inspectors and I hire the best workmen. And we didn't have any concept of Six Sigma and reliable, repeatable processes back then. And I think with innovation, we are starting to see evidence of that. So how would how would a leader listening to you right now who says, you know, I need to learn more of that? How, how do I develop that skill? What would you what would you tell them? Um, I'd say start. Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, first thing is your own agenda. So and this is easy because you control it. So if you think you want to build a better skill at innovation or growth, then put it on your agenda. And I literally do this with executives when I work with them. I say, before I sign up with you, send me the last three you know, management meeting agendas you people used when you talked about important stuff. And I scan that agenda. And if innovation or new business development or growth is kind of item number 18 right next to material safety data sheet update, <laughs> you know, it tells you something. It's literally not on the agenda. So what are you spending your personal time on? What are you spending your personal attention on? And if I look at the leaders that are really good at this, you will see that there, there are regular times specifically set aside in their calendar on their agenda for paying attention to what's new. So that's, that's something you can do immediately. And that's not hard. Now, it's hard in the sense that something else is going to have to get shoved out of that number one, two, or three spot, but you can control that. Second thing I recommend people start with is a look at what is in your portfolio of activities. And most large organizations have absolutely no idea what it is they're actually working on. Um, I know this comes as a shock to a lot of people, but they don't because... They've got strategy, which is what the senior guys think is going on. You've got budgets, which is where the middle management of the firm kind of focuses its attention. Then you've got projects, which are often decided on at a completely different level of the company. And then you've got what people think they're going to get rewarded for. And those things are often wildly out of out of sync. So I recommend that you sit down and really take each important thing you're working on. And I use a map that maps it against levels of uncertainty. So you've got the core. We know what that's like. That's your elephant, right? Then we've got your candidates to be the next generation core. And those are often where companies mess up because they're not willing to make the commitment to them. So if you think about something like Amazon Web Services as an example, so going from retailing to enterprise level uh, computing, pretty big leap, right? But you know, when you're signing up your first customers, the customer says, well, if I'm going to entrust my tech infrastructure to you, how do I know you're going to be here in 18 months? And you can't sit there with your mouth full of teeth and say, well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you have to make a commitment. This is, we've built these data centers, we've done that, you know, here's, here's your assurance that you can do business with us and we're going to be there for you. Um, and then you've got your options. And options are small investments that you make today that may or may not be valuable in the future. They buy you the right to make future choices. So you can think of an option like your mouse, right? So today, right, if I'm in the spatial, you know, recognition space, right, what's going to come after Zoom? I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> is it haptic technology coupled with holography? Is it, is it you know, immersive room? I don't know. Um, is it what Oblong created, like the, 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 the sort of um, you know, rooms full of these screens? Um, 
I don't know. So what would I do? I don't, I don't want to make a big bet at this stage because it's just too highly uncertain. But what I would want to do is have my ears open. So there's lots of ways of doing that. I, can, I could buy a small share in a startup. I could let a couple of people go on a scouting expedition. I could authorize a university grant to go explore something. I could, I could find a science fiction writer to come up with. You know, what you're really doing there is you're creating the mental space and the ability to get a deeper sense of what's going on. And that's what you're doing in options. So back to our, our, our befuddled executive. Um, so what you want to do is go and find out what is actually in your company and then ask the question, does what we're working on map to our strategy for today and our strategy for the future? And nine times out of 10, it's a disconnect. So if you can get hold of your portfolio and start to manage that, that's a really good uh, place to kind of begin. And then after that, I would say you want to you want to start building a toolkit. So making the distinction between what's in the core and what are options is, is a piece of that. Uh, understanding that discovery-driven planning when you're doing something highly uncertain is likely to be a better way to go than this, this process I was describing earlier where you know you have people making these pitches about total quantifications of fantasy where they have no idea what's going on. Um, and so you can start to, you know, and I wouldn't do it all at once. I wouldn't make it a big like program. I would start small with some experiments where maybe you take a team of, I don't know, five, six people and say, you know, go figure out what haptic technology means for our business. And uh, we're going to give you three months to go do that and come back and let us know what you found and, and, and give them the freedom to do it in the right way. Um, and you might be surprised how much you can learn very quickly. So let's build on the ideas that you've been talking about and focus a bit more on your new book, Seen Around Corners, which is about how to spot market inflection points and be prepared. Um, you know, which which may just sound like a well-crafted title to someone hearing it for the first time, but to really develop the ability of truly being able to see around corners and identify inflection points before they happen, in my view, may just be the most important superpower any leader could possibly have in a world that's changing uh, more quickly than ever before. So can you please outline this for us? Yeah. So um, let me start with where businesses come from, because I think this is an important underpinning. So any business is born at a particular moment in time. And there are some things that are possible and some things that are not. And what happens as a company develops a success recipe is it starts to sort out, the people in it start to sort out, oh, if I do this, that happens. If I do that, this happens. And it's all though within the constraints of the existing business. Um, and so what happens as you develop a success recipe is you develop mechanisms to get more of that success. So this recipe feeds into your KPIs, it feeds into your reward structures, it feeds into how you're regulated because now the institutions start to form around this recipe for success. It feeds into, you know, what kind of people you attract. In other words, it creates a whole reality uh, around a success recipe. And that, that's fine. What an inflection point does, and this is where the seeing around corners concept comes in. What an inflection point does is it changes the possibility that created your envelope of constraints. So I think the first step is really how do you set up um, signal sensing mechanisms so that when something very destabilizing, when something has changed that envelope of constraints in your industry. So in the case of the music business, when digital came in and made it possible to actually send high quality songs through the air, <laughs> you know, which was never possible in 1970, you couldn't have done it then. Uh, when something comes along like that, that fundamentally changes either the core technology or the core regulations that you're dealing with or the core social expectations, you really need to work back and think about what does that mean for me? 
So the weak signals are almost always there before the thing that's destabilizing uh, lands on your lap. So I think the first thing that I would urge senior leaders to do is not think that their success recipe, which worked so well at one time, is going to be immortal. You know, be, be alert to what are the changes in technology that make something 10 times better, 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper, 10 times more delightful, uh, 10 times easier. You know, what, what's happening that does that? And if that's something customers are going to want, then uh, you need to really think about where, where is my place in that, in that future. So a great example of a company that did this um, is the, the Norwegian newspaper company Shipstead. And if you think about newspapers, you're, you make most of your money on classified ads <laughs> if you're a newspaper. And, uh, and they saw the internet coming, as did many, many other newspaper companies. So what did the typical newspaper company do? Well, they had the newspaper division, the news group, right? And then you had your digital group. And the, the prompt thing they did was they decided to put rewards on both of them for things like revenue. Well, you know, now they're rivals, right? They're competing with mm. each other. And so a win for digital is a loss for the mainline paper. Shipstead didn't do that. Shipstead took its senior leadership and they said, okay, you're going to be responsible for digital. You're going to be responsible for the printing presses. You're going to be responsible for the news gathering. I don't care <laughs> which of you make it happen. The way you're going to get rewarded is whether Shipstead, the parent company, deepens their relationship with prospective customers. I don't care if it's flying circuses and hot air balloons. Uh, that's what you're going to be rewarded on. I don't care if it's digital, paper, you know, mechanical, handout free. I don't care. Um, and so what, what you've done now is you've created the conditions under which the paper guys are rooting for the digital guys. And the digital guys are like, oh, no, I think this is a great opportunity for paper. Completely different um, mindset that you go after it with. So I think you need to be and I'm going on a bit. I'm sorry about that. But yeah. you need to, I think you need to be um, conscious of what those constraints are that you have been taking for granted and what's going to free up those constraints. What's going to change the world as it is in a way that changes what's possible for your organization. And assumption busting is at the heart of thinking about your future. You know, it's something you talk about a lot, um, but it's really hard to do. <laughs> Um, particularly when you know when you're talking about the elephant and your success has defined you and challenging your success uh, and your identity is really difficult to do. What have you learned about the process of assumption busting? Um, I think you need to take an experimental mindset to it. Um, and that requires a couple of precursor things. It requires acknowledging that these are assumptions. Firstly, so there's a bit of candor and honesty that's involved in being able to say, okay, you know, here's, here's why we're doing this, because this was the constraint that our world operated under for you know, many decades. And let's understand if something different might be important or necessary. So I think there's a, a kind of an openness to realizing that these are assumptions. So that I think awareness is where you have to start. Then I think it's saying, well, how would I test whether this assumption either is still true or is no longer true? What's, what's a small experiment that I could construct? And this is now in the world of experimentation, hypothesis testing, prototyping. Um, and increasingly, that's a very useful toolkit to have. And I think the more that senior leaders can say, let's test that, how would you know? right? Um, I think the faster you'll learn. And if you're able to articulate the assumption and, and construct a test, I think that's the beginning of opening your mind to, well, maybe the world is changing. 
And, and if you can get to that early enough, right, you, you can actually fit in with whatever that inflection point's taking you and potentially grow your business um, in, a, in a very different way. I mean, if you take something like Sony today, I mean, they're largely a content company, right? The, the, the Sony that we sort of remember from our childhood, which made stuff, you know, televisions and music players and stuff, that Sony's changed because they didn't, they, they were not open to pursuing what that inflection point was going to take them. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. We have many uh, listeners of this podcast who are in the HR profession. And Mm -hmm. I've heard you mention that, you know, HR has long wished for a seat at the table. And now, well, be careful what you wish for, because (laughs) HR has a seat at the table, whether they like it or not, because people are one of the only remaining sources of long-term competitive advantage. And I love that you said that, but I would love for you to expound upon that idea Mm -hmm. for us. Sure. So I think the first observation I would make is that our model for careers has really changed. That increasingly today, we're in what um, Reid Hoffman and, and Chrissier have famously called the tour of duty economy, where you sign up with an organization. But remember, these organizations, the thing you signed up for may not exist five years from now. So you sign up, you have a, a tour of duty that you engage in. And when it's done, you might decide to sign up for another tour. You might decide to leave. You might decide to come back. One of the interesting things we're seeing now is this phenomenon where people are coming and going from firms. So alumni are returning and firms are paying much more attention to their alumni networks now, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, And so in a way, your network is becoming more valuable than whatever organization you happen to be temporarily associated with, which is quite stunning when you think about it. Um, So for HR, it's a question of how do I find talent? How do I find diverse talent? That is a big item on the on the agenda right now. And then how do I make sure that talent is up against the right opportunities? And it becomes almost like an air traffic control job uh, where you're, you're connecting skills and capabilities that people have with things that the organization needs. And that really requires almost an architectural skill to be able to say, oh, you know, I've got this venture that's ready to go into acceleration. I've got four people who I know can do that job. Let's put them on this. And so it's a much more um, hands-on, much more central to the strategy execution part of the business than it's ever been. And I don't know that we're really equipping a lot of HR people with what they need to be able to do that because they need to understand the strategy very clearly. They need to have really deep insight into who's good at what. Uh, They need to then be able to have the power. Like, let's say you've got a superstar manager who's reporting to Division B. And you really need some superstar like that to promote this venture. You've got to take that superstar away from the management of Division B, who, by the way, they have an important, powerful, you know, meaningful job over there, and move them to where they can do the best good for the organization. That is hard. And that means you need power. You need power. And so with, with tremendous responsibility comes tremendous power, comes tremendous need to exercise that in a, in a benevolent way for the corporation. Um, Lou Gerstner once said, you know, typical companies put their best people on problems. Exceptional companies put their best people on opportunities. And fundamentally, that's at the heart of the HR leader of the future's job. That's interesting. What are the, you know, you, you advise a lot of companies and you work with a lot of 
senior teams. What what are the biggest pitfalls that you are recurringly seeing, even in the most successful organizations? What are the things that you could almost guarantee you're going to walk into? <laughs> Nothing that will surprise you. Um, no. Politics, self-interest, hierarchy, promotions, you know, it's all the human stuff. Um, yeah. uh, and it's hard because that that is many people's default position. And by the time you get up to those, you know, high altitude uh, levels, the stakes are very high. And, uh, and not everyone is motivated, you know, by the good of the greater organization. There are many, many motivations that people have. So I think you have clashes of self-interest, you have clashes of, of dominance, you know, you get the alpha males bumping up against each other and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the human stuff. Yeah. And I don't know how you completely eliminate that. I've seen companies that have managed it well, um, yeah. but, but, I, but I think it's hard to completely eliminate that. Then I think you've got pockets of ignorance, people that aren't aware of what they aren't aware of. And that's dangerous when you get to a high enough level because it's almost like you've got tunnel vision. You can't see here and you can't see there. And so you make mistakes because you're just not knowing what to look for. And so one of the things I, I try to encourage senior folks to do is develop a broader aperture you can think of it as. So expose yourself to situations which are different. Go to a conference with an industry that's not your own. Um, you know, go talk to somebody who's working on the front lines. And if you look at the leaders that are generally regarded as having been really, you know, remarkable at Jim Sinegal at Costco or or Sam Walton at Walton or, or, you know, what you find is this incredibly rich connection to what's going on at the actual edges of their corporation. So they're in the stores, they're on the trucks, they're helping loading bags in the case of Herb Kelleher at Southwest Air. Um, and so I think getting, getting too cushy in the corner office is a, a danger signal. You know, if you're spending all your time in the office, um, you know, answering emails and talking to your people, uh, that's a really big warning sign. So a tragedy uh, of this nature is the tenure of Brian Krasanek at Intel. Um, he was there for five years and, you know, loved his office, loved his people, had total faith in Intel's manufacturing capability, totally missed the mobile revolution, you know, totally missed the fact that chips needed to be super energy efficient. His mindset was chips are made for machines that are plugged into the wall. And what matters is fast, 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 not, not good enough, but really, really very light on energy consumption. Mm. Um, and I think it was because he really allowed himself to get cut off from all these weak signals that the, the world was changing. And I think um, it, it's sad, you know, and this is what I mean when the stakes get so high, if you've got blind spots at that level of the organization, that that's where, you know, it's just really problematic. And and I, you know, and I'm a huge admirer of Intel. I think it's it's a fabulous organization. But in the wrong hands, you miss things. And you know, in a business like theirs, which is asset intensive and the competitive cycles last for multiple years, that that's really risky. What's your next area of research? What are the things you're you're you know kind of really excited about doing at the moment? Oh well, um, I'm building an um, sort of on-demand learning. Uh, system. And, the, and it goes together with um, a piece of software. And I, I want to be super careful. It's not a software offering. It's a software guide to how you can bring discovery-driven growth to life. So it helps you organize your checkpoints. It helps you capture your assumptions. And as you're, say, let's say you're at a checkpoint that's um, segment customers, and you don't know anything about segmenting customers, the vision is you hit this button, you pop over to your learning system, you spend an hour sort of, oh, okay, you know, I could do that. And here's here's a thing to try next. You come back to your learning system, you, you document what you're doing and, and you go on. So I think uh, it's an answer to a long frustration of mine, which has been, you know, we talked about it, 1995. <laughs> you know, 
it's been around since then and companies are still struggling to implement it. So this is hopefully going to make it a lot easier. So that's a big project that I'm working on and uh, that will make it, I'm very excited about that. And then on the more intellectual side, I'm working on a new book. And the tentative title for the new book is Time Zero. So in seeing around corners, you'll know that I refer to time zero events as being like, that's the moment when inflection points are upon you. And I thought, you know, given all that's happened in 2020 and 2021, it would be a really timely Mm. idea to stop and say, all right, we're at time zero. Now what? And so it's sort of the next the next follow on from and from seeing around corners. Mm. That sounds really good. Yeah. Exciting. So. Let's let's talk a little bit about your experience of uh, of the last year and a half COVID. What what insights? What, what was your experience like of of, uh, of doing this? I'm sure you're in, in demand in the virtual space, but what what did you take from what, what's happened to, uh, to us? Well, let's see. So the first significant decision that I made that was COVID related was um, to cancel a trip that was scheduled for early March. And as you may remember back then in 2020, uh, people were talking about, oh, you know, we're going to shut down the airline. We're going to force people to quarantine. You know, we really want to know where you've been. And my husband and I were scheduled to take a trip in March. And I just said, this doesn't feel right to me. Um, this just doesn't, you know, so we, we didn't, thank, thankfully. And then about two weeks later, that's when the world kind of decided we were in a pandemic and it, drastic changes needed to be made. And then what was interesting, and I'd say this is not unique to me, but everybody in the sort of speaking chattery class <laughs> had everything get canceled. And, the you know, event organizers and people that do this kind of convening had everything get canceled. And so there was this flurry of two or three months where every minute of every day was just consumed with some kind of free thing. You know, you may remember there was yeah. a recovery concert and then there were the you know 24 hour outthinker concert and, and everybody, because we were all at home, right? And everybody knew you didn't, you didn't have any excuse to say no, basically. <laughs> and then what happened was I think people got fed up with that. And the next phase was really, okay, you know, we've done the, we've done the triage, we've done the emergency thing. We sort of figured out the first few days of work from home. And remember, there were early adopters and late adopters. I mean, there were people in March who were saying, oh, by Easter, we'll be done. And then it was, oh, by the 4th of July, we'll be done. And then it was, oh, definitely by Thanksgiving, we'll be done. And then it was, yeah, by Christmas, we, and, 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 and. So a lot of companies really dragged their feet in terms mm-hmm. of what it would take to be actually doing this. And this is a sidebar, but I think this is going to come back to haunt them because now they're looking for people to come back and be involved and be committed and be you know engaged. And a lot of those people are like, you know, where were you for me when I was trying to figure out work from home, homeschooling, dealing with kids? You know, mm. I, I didn't even own a laptop before this. Where were you supporting me? And now you want me to come back and support you? I think there's a huge reckoning among labor to come. Um, so that's that's a, so, so then just continuing chronologically. So then what happened was everybody sort of said, wait a minute, there's a lot we can do virtually. And it's less expensive and it's less frictionful. And so it started to happen then. And we did this at Columbia, uh, schools all over did this. We, we went virtual. So the things I would have been flying around the world to do became much more uh, virtual. And I actually found there were some huge positives to that, as well as negatives, of course. But the huge positives were you could reach more people. You could do it more cost effectively. You could invite people into your world that you wouldn't have been able to if you had to fly them to New York and sit in the conference room. Um, And so I think we learned a lot about how to do it, how to do it effectively, um, how to set yourself up for it, that kind of thing. Um, And so the nature of what I talked about changed as well. So, you know, um, you guys know a lot of book authors 
book thing. You get up, you talk about your book, you have your step speech and, you know, it's great. And, mm. and off you go. Um, my book of business changed completely. It, it completely transformed into help me make sense of this. What are the three most important things I need to be paying attention to? What are the scenarios I need to be gearing my company for? What are the weak signals I need to look for? Much more about let me figure this out than, you know, tell me about what you think. And that was great for me because I, I love problems like that. For example, I was invited to do a, a segment for the um, Amer American Forestry Association. These are people who literally make tree related things for a living. And, you know, I have to tell you, never in my life have I given serious, deep thought to American forests. But when you start researching it, it's a fascinating sector. And we came up with a two by two, we came up with early warnings, helped them prepare. And so it was just a few months later that the pricing in the whole late lumber business started to go haywire. We actually had mapped out that scenario. And the folks in that meeting knew what their plan B was going to be in the event of that happening. So I felt pretty good about that. That mm. was that was exciting. So I think where we are now is in this very uneasy moment of some things are personal, some things are virtual. I think among the chattery classes, a lot of what I hear is, oh, I'm never going to go back to Monday, Monday to Thursday at the airport again. I just don't want to do that. Um, I got so much more done here. I had so much more time for myself and my family and, you know, whatever I wanted to do that wasn't sitting around in airport lounges. So I think there's going to be some very interesting dynamics as we figure out what the next phase of this is going to be. I think I think we are potentially on the brink of enormous prosperity. And the person I would draw on is Carlotta Perez. And uh, you're probably familiar with her work. You've probably yeah. had her on your show. She's amazing. But what she talks about is these, these um, transformational technologies uh, that, that take a period of, I forget what she calls it, but it's like a period of incubation for them to actually become known. And I think digital is perhaps one of those. Mm. And, and then there's a wholesale transformation. So when you go from you know, water power to electricity, right, it takes 20 to 30 years. But once people figure out the benefits of electricity, oh my God, you know, things just take off. Um, one of the darker parts of her prediction was she said it takes, it often takes some kind of massive social perturbation before the thing goes into the golden years, uh, because you have to get rid of the old regime and the old regime doesn't like it. And they're going to fight like hell to keep what they've got. So there's usually some disruptive event, a war, you know, mm. or whatever. So here's my hope. My hope is that the pandemic will actually serve that purpose without our having to have some much more violent um, outbreak. But she says once these new technologies become more mainstream and widespread adopted, adopted, then you're kind of on the upswing of the S curve. And that's where enormous prosperity can come. One of my hopes, and I'm beginning to see evidence this is likely to happen, is that we handle that prosperity in a more fair way. Uh, that right now the spoils of economic productivity just flow upward in the most massive way. And we know from history, A, that's not stable. B, it's not a happy place to be as a society, as a community. And C, it's, it's dangerous. And, uh, and it's, it doesn't lead to prosperity. It leads to people hoarding money. And uh, Nick Hanauer is a venture capitalist, and he's been talking about this for a long time. He says, look, I'm a pretty rich guy, right? Um, at best, I'm going to buy 10 pairs of pants. But if I gave a tenth of my wealth, to 100 people that work for me, each of them are going to buy a pants. So you're selling 100 pairs of pants. Doesn't that just make sense? That would produce more economic growth than me having all the money. And it's a perfectly sensible argument. I mean, there's only so many yachts you can buy. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos couldn't even spend enough money on one yacht. He had to have two yachts. <laughs> like at some point, <laughs> there's just no, you can't, you can't do anything more with it. It doesn't buy you more happiness. Let's talk about your, uh, your, your perspective on the future of education. 
Sure. So I think what we'll see is, and we know that shocks to the system and the pandemic is often obviously a shock to the system. Shocks to this, this system produce experimentation. They produce novel ideas, most of which are going to be stupid and won't work, and some of which will have tremendous sticking power. So one of the things I think we will see is enormous experimentation in terms of what does education mean? What does it mean to have a credential or a degree? Um, you know, how do I know someone has the skill? Wouldn't it be great to get rid of degree inflation where people are getting degrees just to prove that they have the credential because that's the gate to the door, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and what if I could tell instead that you were, you know, level four creative poetry person? <laughs> and if that's what I was looking for, that's what I should get. So I think we'll see a lot of questioning of these assumptions about um, our education system, certainly in the, well, most of the world, actually, you know, education is at the low at the younger levels it's it's kids have to go to school for a period of time and in the u.s it's still dictated by the agricultural calendar so they they got out you know in the afternoon to go farm fields and stuff it's kind of an antiquated model mm -hmm. so you know there's been a lot of effort made and there's been huge kind of inertia and resistance but i think we'll start to see more successful experiments come out of this at the higher ed level i think the pandemic has been very interesting in illustrating that higher ed has two jobs to do right? The, the first job is the one that we as the professoriate like to talk about, which is we impart knowledge. It's like we're pouring it into the welcoming heads of impressionable young people so that they become smarter and wiser and more knowledgeable. The job nobody talks about is the other job, which is the real job, right? Which is the coming of age job. Uh, so I go to campus, I'm under the leaves, I'm in my dorm room, I'm debating Nietzsche at two in the morning, you know, that's, that's this other job. And what education is trying to do right now is charge parents for this job <laughs> and, and uh, as though they were getting that job. And I think that has really created a huge amount of transparency around what are people mm. really prepared to pay for? Because to be honest, if I want to know how to do four P's of marketing, there's probably 10 free videos on YouTube that could teach me that. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And so I think the real mission of education, at least at the higher levels, is more, much more about capability creation and skill building and then the ability to think you know, mm. with clarity. Uh, rather than just, can I do this calculation? Can I do this thing? So I think I think we are going to see some really interesting shifts in how education is conceived of and delivered. I imagine, as you talked about, you know, the old guard in business defending the status quo and the way things have been. I imagine you're seeing some of that in the education space too. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, everything from the teachers' unions to university administrations. Um, and you know, think about our our in higher ed anyway. We have this system of tenure. So after seven or eight years, you know, a, a committee of sages advises on whether they think you should be given a job for life. And if you're successful, you get a job for life. And somebody's going to come along and say, well, actually, we're rethinking this whole thing. Um, we, you know, we think we should be on three-year rolling contracts and you should be paid based on how much in demand your courses are and, 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 and somebody who has tenure based on the old rules is going to look at you in complete horror and say, but that's not, that's not scholarship, right? <laughs> and so you've got this just complete immovable object meets irreversible force. And we'll see how that plays out. You know, I think there, I am incredibly respectful of scholarship and it is magical that we have entire populations of people whose job it is to think and think about that. Mm -hmm. That's their job. Create new knowledge. We give them that, that job. I think that's brilliant. And as a society, I totally think we should support that. But let's not get that job confused with this other job of producing you know, future citizens and arming right. our workforce and making sure people can earn a living once they pay their tuition. I mean, there's a lot of other things that that job does not do well. Yeah. Well, this has been brilliant. Thank you 
so much for coming on. Uh, I could I could talk to you for hours longer if we had the time. So really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Rita, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. You've given us a huge amount of uh, things to think about in a very short period of time. So, which I knew exactly that that would be the case. But uh, it's always <laughs> it's always so lovely to be with you. You're so such a positive force. Your smile is like a tractor beam. So, uh, oh, thank you. Know, you. It's uh, it, it's wonderful to see you again. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?